welcome to my art forum. It's time for post-orthodoxy, a show about changing our minds. Yeah, baby. With your hosts, Dark and Ainsley Sevier. Maybe what they believe about reality isn't all of reality. What? I know, right? We are on a mission to have a better time with more people more often. The question is more how do you get there? Post-orthodoxy explores strongly held beliefs, how those belief systems divide or connect people, and what might be found beyond those reality bubbles. Keep calm. Don't lose your head. I've got a piece of chocolate here with me because I got anxiety about doing this. Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor. Yes, indeed. Welcome to this neighborhood. We really appreciate you guys being here. This is Ainsley Sevier and with me in the studio today, Citizen DJ Dark Sevier. You're tuned into Post-Orthodoxy. This is a show about changing our minds, a show about discovering what our reality bubbles might be and what might be outside of them. And uh, we've been talking a lot leading up to today's show, uh, thanks to a prompt from a friend of the show, what is our audience with this show? Who is our audience? Who are we trying to get in touch with? Who are Who? we trying to talk to? Who are we talking to? What are we doing here? And one of the things that came up for me is that I definitely feel like we, Dark and I, point to doors. Mm. We're not experts. We're self-educated people who work hard to try to be sovereign over our own minds. And we can't tell you what to think or how to think. All we can do is say, we're all on pathways. Maybe you can think of it as a hallway. And here are some doorways that you could go through if you wanted to. Also, uh, Ainsley and I were raised in cults. So <laughs> we have a hyper um, awareness of dogmatic slash fundamentalistic slash orthodox views and the dangers of such. Dangers of being dogmatic? Yeah, the dangers of just going along with the program. Just do what you're told. Don't question the program. Just be a soldier in the program. Mm -hmm. That's a thing that I kind of have a little, it's kind of a stickler. I think I have more of a problem with that than you do. Yeah. Because you, uh, you, you are good at wearing a mask at the grocery store. Well. And I struggle with the concept. Of wearing a mask. Not the concept of mask wearing as a health aid, but the concept that everyone I care about on Facebook is yelling in shorter and louder sentences day by day that if I'm not wearing a mask, I don't love anyone. Well, I keep seeing the argument broken down into yes or no, and I think that's dangerous, frankly. So people say, do you wear a mask in public, yes or no? Yeah. I don't think that's... That just puts us in, in completely a divisive stance. I don't wear a mask in public sometimes. <laughs> I don't wear a mask in public when I'm walking my dog. Mm. I don't wear a mask if I'm walking along in the farmer's market, if I'm not talking to people who are in the risk group, mm-hmm. or who consensually, if I'm talking with somebody who's not wearing a mask and I'm not wearing a mask, and we're aware that we have our own choices to make and we're responsible for our actions... I'm not going to put up a mask to talk to somebody else because I know I don't have, um, uh, I am not overtly suffering from the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Apparently. That's why you don't wear a mask because you don't feel like you have it. Well, the latest information is uh, the risk of asymptomatic contagion is extremely rare. Right. The risk of asymptomatic 
contagion is extremely rare. But all so. the things that I see my loved ones yelling about on Facebook is like, but what if you're wrong and the, you get someone sick because you weren't wearing a mask? Right. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. We can go down the mask road. I think it's uh, it's always fun to I'd like talk to, about it. Yeah. I put the mask in the bandana style. I just wear a bandana around my neck as though it could become a mask at any moment. Mm. And that makes some people who are hypersensitive and perhaps hyper fearful of our current uh, narrative around the virus, it makes them feel less fearful. So I wear the mask around my neck as a sort of subliminal virtue signal. Right. That I Rather than don't want to kill their grandma. A full-on virtue yeah. signal of the question going around on Facebook, do you wear a mask, yes or no, and nothing else? It's it's That's a... Do you or don't you? A, because that's how I know if you're a good person or not. Right. Let's just put each other into camps. Uh, nobody else is going to have to put us into camps because we're putting our we're putting our neighbors into camps with this sort of black and white thinking. So we, we nose dived, we nose dove into the mask thing because we were talking about who our intended audience is for right. post orthodoxy, and it's it's other people who may have grown up in or realized they are a part of cult-like environments or groups mm. and that maybe they don't want to be in a cult-like environment or group anymore or have cult-like thinking. Maybe it's a, a radio show for people who are tired of everyone yelling that there's only one right way to do things. Uh, a lot of that is fear, in my opinion. A yeah. lot of this desire to pick a side, uh, the increasing desire to pick a side. We have less and less nuance, which means we can't really have uh, discussions we just have to have cheering sides, mm. people who are cheering for their side, which I think is extremely dangerous on a medical issue. Yeah. <laughs> there shouldn't um, be sides like the no. post that I made. The medical issue is not a Republican or Democrat issue. It's yeah. a human issue. And I've seen and we're people... And not, we're not dealing with it on a human issue. We're dealing with it in political terms. In political which terms. Is, which is not smart. I'm keeping an ear out like a little radar. Boop, boop. Boop, yeah. boop, for if you say any of the things that Donald Trump has said, and if you say anything that I know Donald Trump has said, then, I'm, I'm going to trust you less. I'm going to respect you less. I'm going to, you know, like, these are things people are doing. They're not actually listening or having a conversation. They're just like, virtue uh, signals. Uh -oh, that person yep. said some of the wrong stuff from fear, the other team. Fear is very limiting in your cognitive abilities. That's very true. And this, these are primal, natural, animal things. We cannot evolve when we are afraid, when we are defensive. So I'm going to start off the program here. Yeah, um, tell us what we're talking about today. Well, before we start talking about that, oh, I'm going to put a link in our little comments because we are also streaming live on Facebook. If you're listening to us on the radio, we are also streaming live on Facebook. And um, we do that mainly so we have an ease of communication between people who want to get involved Participate in, the in the conversation because we are here uh, gathering sources as much as we are providing sources mm -hmm. we are always looking for other people's input i'm looking to refine my perspectives on important issues of the day so i'm always looking for people who have good information yeah. um in the meantime i am trying to find some good information to share with our audience and i wanted to start off today i posted a link to a website called Hidden tribes.us. So dot us. It is a so if you just Google hidden tribes, mm -hmm. I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, it was a survey that looked at the political landscape of the country, who we are, what we are, versus the narrative, the ongoing narrative, which is often driven by mainstream media and news. The narrative being here's the story about the U.S. The left and the right, the left and There's the right. There's blue and red, and right, that's it. Right. That's the story. 
So they, it's a, it's a, I found it to be an interesting study. Uh, they, it, it goes far more than just left and right. And so they did a survey with a large amount of people, a nice uh, cross sample of the country. One of the groups that they were, I think, surprised to find, and uh, it was the largest group, it was the most unifying group of what, you know, you can break people up politically or socially or different, but the overall group, this was the largest group. And uh, I'm just going to read from the website, Hidden Tribes of the U.S. Um, our audience, uh, and this is in reference to who, who are we talking to on the show. This is who I'm hoping to talk to. This is who you are hoping to talk to through post-orthodoxy? Yeah, because I, it's, I, it's the group that I identify with. So I want to talk to my peeps. Yeah. So uh, it's a group called the Exhausted Majority. Uh, this is from the website. While the story of the wings may be one of division and conflict, a very different story is found in the rest of America. By the way, the wings were... Small, the right wing and the left wing? Small minority groups in the country. So when he's saying wings, he means the right wing and the left wing. Right. As in, it's just one small part of the actual bird. Right. So a, uh, a very different story is found in the rest of America. In fact, the largest group that we uncovered in our research has so far been largely overlooked. It is a group of Americans we call the exhausted majority. Our collective term for the four tribes representing a two-thirds majority of Americans who aren't part of the wings. Although they appear in the middle of our chart and graphs, most members of the exhausted majority aren't political centrists or moderates. On, each, on specific issues, their views range across the spectrum. But while they hold a variety of views... The members of the exhausted majority are also united in important ways, and they have four important ways. They're fed up with the polarization plaguing American government and society. They are often forgotten in the public discourse, overlooked because their voices are seldom heard. They are flexible in their views, willing to endorse different policies according to the precise situation rather than sticking to ideologically uh, sticking ideologically to a single set of beliefs this team no matter what they say no they're willing to look at the issues right uh, and they believe that we can find common ground it's possible this is the what they call the exhausted majority as so humans that's kind of who i think of when i think i'm talking to somebody who might be interested people who are already signed up for a team people who are already invested in a blue no matter who identity or a Trumper identity, when you're invested in that, you automatically have an, an opposition team mm -hmm. to keep you occupied. It doesn't give you... If you're a, invested in knowing who the enemy is. Yeah, if you're invested in knowing the, who the enemy is... You probably won't like our show. It's a reflection of who you are, right? Because they call these the wings because they're extremes. Mm -hmm. So in the political landscape... Not necessarily extremes by their political views, extremes in how they enact their views in the world, right. extreme behaviors and belief systems. So our media tends to speak to the most extremes among us because it makes for saucier content. It sells more Doritos. It also um, uh, drive. It's a it's a fear driven thing, which is a part of the mainstream media. Uh, this is not some like far extreme left or right wing conspiracy. The nature of our commercial media is to make money by selling commercials. That's why it's called MSNBC, CBS, Fox, Fox News, News, CNN. Their job, New their York function Times. <laughs> is to make money. Their job, their main job is not we need to accurately inform folks. 
No. Their main job is to make money. Uh, maybe they used to have that, like, Hippocratic oath of journalism, they, but they, that's not what they're doing today. Generally, there are some journalists out there doing really good work. Generally speaking, commercial media. Right. Its job is to drive viewership. Mm. And there's a psychological component to that. Driving viewership also means driving viewership with an aim to sell the products that the viewers are watching. Mm -hmm. So the programs are there. Really, it's not that the commercials are interrupting our television programs or newscasts. It's that the newscasts and the programs are interrupting uh, the commercials. That's really the way it comes down to it. It's a stream. The commercials of, are the main. The commercials point. are the main point. Yeah. It's a stream of buy these things. So people interspersed say, with news. So people say, "Well, I don't watch the commercials, or I mute the commercials." That's not really the point. The point is the content is being driven by commercial enterprise. Paid for. And so you're, even the content, the programs, are not going to be at odds with the advertisers, or they will lose ad revenue. Right. The content so big has to ad be revenues. acceptable to. The right. companies selling stuff on that channel. Right. So if the new, if you don't like the news or the way the news is being covered, you have very little recourse in addressing the news station and saying, "Hey, why don't you do some actual journalism that isn't sensationalistic?" However, if you do something that maybe shows a weak spot in the belly of some corporate beast, they will be contacted mm -hmm. and told that your your income is in danger if you don't find a way to maybe look over at this issue over mm. here instead. This is not con this is conspiracy stuff. This is not conspiracy theory. Right. This is the way the conspiracy works between the corporate uh, culture. We have a corporate culture. I just wish we could right. get rid of the word conspiracy and just call it a theory. Like we, it's not a theory. We and several yeah. other people have developed a theory based on the evidence. This is how well, science works. Well, this isn't a theory. This is a conspiracy. Oh, this okay. is this right. is the advertisers. And the media sources conspiring. We know there is yeah. a conspiracy. So uh, there's a really nice book that was put out, a book that I really enjoyed called Culture Jam by a guy named Callie Lawson. Uh, the book was all about trying to transform the consumer culture in the country. And uh, one of the things that I learned from that book was this notion that the way advertising works, it's meant to be, they've discovered that uh, people consume more when they are fried, frightened. So when you see news that makes you afraid, so all people have to do is turn on and see Donald Trump speaking again, and that's enough to spark some fear. In some, some purchasing. People. Fear, outrage. Often outrage comes from some kind of fear. Mm -hmm, yeah. The anger you, comes from some kind of fear. There's yeah. a beastie in your environment, and is Donald Trump on your TV, or, or maybe it's Nancy Pelosi on your TV, whoever you're afraid of. Right. Um, or angry at. I right. think there you can switch those two out. Um, so that fear does something inside of us that makes us more susceptible to consumption because that makes us want to comfort ourselves. So basically, the model is people are there are fear spikes, and then we are shown uh, advertisements mm -hmm. for things that might make us feel better. 
yeah. from the fear spike that we had just watched. Yes. So that's kind of the way mainstream news, that's the engine of mainstream news. Buy these news. drugs, that's buy by, these snacks, buy these toys. Right. So that's by design. It's a corporate model. Mm-hmm. It's This is not some, again, it's some not extreme a theory. theory. That's just a business model. We know that that's the business model that's being used in mainstream media. Right. So in that, you will have journalism and so on and whatnot. But however, there are there is an orthodox view of the media, and then there are the fringe people. Right, there are the people who do independent journalism and don't get paid a lot of money for it. Right. Um, and sorry, guys, the more you're getting paid, the least likely I am to trust you. And that's unfortunate because it's I think people should be paid to do due diligence and try to do some investigative journalism and try to tell us what's going on. And it's also like where, somehow be protected from bribery. How do you? Right. How do you? What is your bias <laughs> in the writing? What is your mm-hmm. bias in the writing? So, <clears throat> to start off today, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about who we're talking to. Um, people who are, are tired of the fight, mm-hmm. which is prescribed. It's given prescribed to us. Fight. Yeah, the, our fight and has you, been given better, to us. You better pick a side, boy. You can't be you can't be ambiguous in the fight. You have to be mm-hmm. in the fight, or you don't care. That's the narrative, right? right. So there, here's a prescription: get involved in a fight, and if you don't take the prescription, then you're a bad person in society. So, uh, if you're getting your news about the coronavirus, if you're getting it from uh, heavily advertised sources, mm-hmm. I, I find that as a point of concern. So I am looking for other sources. That's part of why I do this show is because I want to hear from people. Doing this show every week keeps us out there looking for more reliable information. Right. Last week I played an eight-minute clip from a guy named uh, Michael Levitt. He's a Stanford professor of biophysics, uh, Cambridge PhD and DSC, 2013 chemistry Nobel laureate uh, around the complex systems. He's a national uh, FRS and U.S. National Academy member. Anyway, he's he's not a slouch. This yeah. guy's a doctor who's who's earned some titles and letters after his if name. If you want to gripe about everybody being an expert these days, this guy is an actual expert. So here's something I got from the internet. It's Michael Levitt's Twitter feed. The Nobel Laureate yeah. Experts Twitter feed. So M. Levitt underscore NP2013. That is his Twitter handle. So not only Michael is Levitt. he a heavily studied and widely lauded scientist and educated man, but he's also actually actively involved in the current culture and disseminating information to people where the people are looking for information. He's right. not just writing scholarly journals that only other scholarly journal readers find. No, this guy's been involved in COVID research since the end of January. He's just been feverishly trying to model what's happening using data as it comes up. Mm. So uh, through him, I found another Twitter, Twitter feed of somebody named Gummy Bear 737. <laughs> um, gummy, bear. gummy Bear is another bear. COVID researcher. <laughs> That's uh, his Twitter handle. Who has been working, who's been responding back and forth mm-hmm. and trying to take um, the somewhat dry uh, academic work of Michael Levitt and convert it into more uh, uh, proletariat terms. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Levitt has basically said, yeah, that seems, I agree with the things that you're saying. Let me so say this I'm, in I'm, not right. scholarly journal terms. Right. Uh, that's a problem that he has. Is he's 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 doing good science, but it's not always uh, layman. He's ready. trying to spread the science so fast that he doesn't have time to translate it into words that we would understand, having not done multiple PhDs and won a Nobel award. So there is a there's a oh I was gonna find that I need to find it. I'll do it at some point during the show. There's a so Gummy Bear seven thirty seven on Twitter 
his pinned post is where he does this big breakdown of Michael Levitt's research trying to model this virus and give us an outlook for what we may expect. Because what I'm seeing for most of the mainstream news is we're all going to die. And if you don't wear a mask, then you don't care if we all die. Right. But th these are some people trying to look at, they're trying to predict maybe what might happen based on previous data mm -hmm. in conjunction with other uh, viruses of the like. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so, so that's what science does. Right, right. So Gummy Bear 737, uh, breaking down Michael Levitt's stuff, says his major op observation was that for the most part, COVID-19 behaves according to the Gompertz function. Now that's oh. something you're going to have to look up. Uh, the G-O-M-P-E-R-T-Z, Gompertz function. And he's going to tell us what Gompertz function is, no, I'm guessing. No, no. Oh. I'm just putting that out there. Uh, okay. Because there's, there's so many sidebars, we'll never get to the point. But All the right. Gompertz function is I'm going to share a link in a our model. Yeah, Facebook feed so it. people can educate themselves. So it is a, it's a... Um, I'm just going to read this further, but you can look up Gompert's function. You have a phone, you have a, you have a Google, you can check it out. You have an education right. in your pocket. His major observation was, for the most part, COVID-19 behaves according to the uh, Gompert's function and leads to create a similar curve, which tends to burn out around 15 to 20% infected or around 500 to 600 deaths per million. So his prediction is this virus will be like a other coronavirus the seasonal flu it may be it may have some spikes that are different mm -hmm. but it should have basically the same uh, curve and, as the seasonal right. flu so the theory is once 15 to 20 percent of the population are infected with mm -hmm. COVID-19 then we will see uh, contagion and deaths fall off Fewer, once about 15% of the population has encountered the COVID-19, yes. uh, the death rate will go down and the infection rate will go down. Right. Okay. So right now we're seeing more infection rates because we're doing more testing than ever before. In the U.S. But In the U.S., but you have to look not just at how many people were detected, but the percentage of people who were positive. Mm-hmm. And that, that's problematic with a lot of the tests because we're seeing a lot of false positives. My dad was one of those false positives. Yeah, 85 a lot of year old really guy. inconsistent testing. Do you testing. have COVID? Oh, I'm sorry, you don't have COVID. But yeah. anyway, so, um, and he goes on to say Stockholm, Sweden. We've been following this Sweden story. Yes. And uh, both sides like to use it as a champion of their story. Yeah. So uh, people who... Why are there sides on a scientific right, issue like this? Anti-mask people say, Ugh. look. See? They didn't wear a mask, and we were not that as bad as everybody else. And the people who like masks say, look, they didn't wear a mask, and they're worse than everybody else. And you can find data to support both sides of the story. Sorry, guys. It's not easy. So to actually find out what's going on, you have to look at herd immunity, which is what Sweden was Sweden. Uh, banking on, is that once we get to a certain point, then it's, gonna, it's going to um, die off. Uh, you know, fewer and fewer infections. Um, so uh, Stockholm is the best population to test COVID theory, whereby it was hit hard early and did not have lockdowns. Nobel Prize winner Dr. Michael Levitt postulated that the virus burns out when it's affected 15 to 20% of the population, according to this, he's right. So that's what we're seeing happen Statistically, every other time there's been one of these kinds of planetary viruses going around, once about 15% of the planet has been affected by it, 
the numbers start going down. So what we're looking at, if you get into the geek numbers, is that the peak was in March. The peak of percentage of infections mm-hmm. was in March. It got around everywhere. And the deaths are now dropping off. Mm. Uh, and, and so that's two people I wanted to throw out there, Michael Levitt and, and Gummy Bear 737, because Gummy Bear is doing more uh, layman terms for what Levitt is working on. Following those two guys on, or I don't know if Gummy Bear is a guy or girl, but following those two folks, mm-hmm. uh, in their feeds, in their communication, it's not full of a lot of flamers that just want to make the virus Trump's fault or something else. They seem to be people who are actually interested in the data and trying to understand what's going on in the world outside the fear factor. So I found a number of sources in those two feeds to help me sort of get a better idea of what's happening outside the mainstream, uh, mainstream news narrative. So that's my update for what's going on with coronavirus. 15 to 20% herd immunity should die off. Apparently the numbers are looking like we're having a higher than normal uh, flu mm-hmm. season. One thing that I haven't heard very many people talk about is what happened to the flu. Mm. So if you're being tested with, if you're being tested positive, I'm not hearing a lot of numbers about is it, are you tested positive for COVID, which is a cold, or COVID, which is the flu, or COVID, which is Mm COVID-19, or there's a lot of different COVIDs out there. So there's a a mass spectrum panel, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, um, how they decide whether you are infected or not so the numbers are are difficult because of every state is doing something different every country is doing Mm -hmm. something different but what's shaking out are people dying and people getting sick and the number of people who died so looking at past information Mm -hmm. we're able to get a good idea on at least the deaths and apparently the deaths have have been not much greater than a strong flu season so i think we've been conflating people who have died what normally might have died from the seasonal flu with corona so how much of the corona death number is actually normal seasonal flu number because we haven't heard anything that's about why that. uh the link that you shared on your twitter feed earlier today is so important because this swedish scientist i think he was swedish um was he's like the numbers that we really need to be looking at are total deaths globally and he's like here's the total deaths globally in 2018 at this time and here's the total deaths globally in 2020 at this time and there's really not much of a difference and he's like we need to be we need to be and and i understand that that has to do with like higher suicide rates because people are isolated or lower alcohol death rates because people can't go out or whatever you know Mm -hmm. but like we need to be looking at uh, we, uh, it's not easy. I'm sorry. It's not easy. What we've, what, what people are coming to is that, uh, uh this doesn't mean people are dying. This doesn't mean people no. are not dying of COVID-19. And people so are dying of COVID-19. People are dying of, uh, other kinds of coronaviruses also yes. all the time. All coronas matter. Um, yeah, yeah so- I think that's important to point out. Like, um, I've been trying really, really hard to make sure that I, much like I started a campaign a couple of years ago to always say U.S. citizens or the U.S. Versus instead of Americans. America, because yeah. they're like 26 countries in America and people from Ecuador are Americans. Like I'm, I'm also making a campaign to, to say COVID-19 instead of coronavirus because our planet is full of coronaviruses and several of them cause the common cold and the flu. Right, so, which, which brings us to another big chunk of the show that I want to get into 
today. Okay. The research, the bulk of the research that I've been doing, which is about the terminology that we're hearing. So how much do you know about the words that you're hearing? We hear about a COVID death toll. And what I say every week, did they die of the virus or with the virus? Mm. Those are two very important distinctions. Yes, I've learned a lot about how viruses work this week. We can take a moment to figure out that there should be an important delineation between people who died with COVID-19 and people who died of COVID-19. Well, I would say, based on the research that we've done this week, no one is dying from the coronavirus. Oh, what are they dying from? Scientifically. Scientifically. Okay. Viruses are things in our environment that if you encounter a large viral load of that virus, yeah. it weakens your immune system. And when your immune system is weak, you are more susceptible to Die from opportunistic right. illnesses and infections right. such as um, thrush or pneumonia or meningitis or cervical cancer. These are things that wow. have more of a foothold in your body when because, your immune right. system is weak from dealing with a virus. Right. So you're dying from pneumonia or you're dying from advanced cancer or you're dying from these other complications that you're weaker to fight off because you've already been weakened by the virus. There's an article I want to get into a little bit later, but I want to read part of the article now, and then I'll reference where this came from. Uh, this guy named Kerry Mullis. He was the inventor of the polymerase chain reaction or the PCR test, which they're using for the coronavirus. That's also what they tested. That's what the test that they used that, that made HIV the thing that we know today in our story. Mm. Um, yes, our main topic today. Is about, is about HIV AIDS. HIV and AIDS, or mm. HIV AIDS. Mm. A very important distinction we're going to get into in a second. But I want to talk about immune. I want to talk about our immune system for a second. And I want to talk about viruses What for do a you second. know about your immune system? Anything? So uh, this guy, Kerry, I think it was Kerry Mullis, or this is the article. Let me find. DNA upgrade. Let's talk about a DNA upgrade mm-hmm. and a software upgrade. I think we know what a software upgrade is. Let's say your phone needs a software upgrade. Mm. Suddenly, they've got new stuff. They figured out where a bug is, mm-hmm. and they have this new upgrade that keeps you from getting that bug mm-hmm. on your phone. So or your phone, they give you yeah. new powers on your phone that you didn't have before. Now you can do this quicker function to get capital letters or something, mm. right? So the upgrades, your software upgrades, enable uh, regular devices to evolve and move forward. As long as that device has the capacity to evolve and move forward. And then the upgrades stop being effective on certain devices. Mm -hmm. Right? So um, I'm wondering uh, how how much have we as a general public, people who are actively posting COVID-19 memes, how much have we learned about the natural life of viruses in humans? Like, how much, uh, if we looked, would we find beauty, truth, and wonder? We would find that viruses are rarely deadly, always misunderstood, and actually trying to protect us. That is another perspective if Le you shock. look into if you look into what a virus is, and that brings me to another problem. If we looked at viruses with fresh eyes today, with yes, today's current science, without the fear of the story, and we can, in, when you're done with this, and I'm going to do my best not to interject uh, a lot today because I know you've got a lot of stuff you want to cover, but I always want to try to help please, give people like perspectives yes. on 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 the information you're sharing. Very and important. so, when you're done reading this article about how viruses are actually beautiful, I want to talk about why we named them the enemy in the when we discovered them. <laughs> okay, so this is from the article 
uh, by a name, uh, lady named Celia Farber. The article is called, Was the COVID-19 Test Meant to Detect a Virus? And uh, this lady, uh, Celia Farber, uh, did an article back in 1994 with the inventor of the PCR test. And so this is her writing in that article. And we're going to get back to this later. We're going to start here. We're going to go elsewhere and we'll come back to this. But uh, just giving you a context. That's what we usually do on post-orthodoxy. And she says, um, we have an immune system that is a miracle like the Sistine Chapel. It withstands toxic microbial inundation on a grand scale at all times. While operating a superhighway of adaptive, life-sustaining genetic information on cellular bridges, emitting telegrams of vital evolutionary code slandered as viruses or retroviruses. Mm. People die, yes, but people don't die the way some would have you believe. Mm. At the mercy of predatory pathogens hiding on every surface and especially other people. That's not science, that's social engineering. Mm. So... This is where I ask, is the mainstream media a form of psychological terrorism? Okay. Uh, Fear breeds insecurity, and then consumer culture offers us a variety of ways to buy our way out of our insecurity. Mm -hmm. And that puts us into, let's get binary and deal with two camps. It's the difference between belief systems, how you're reading this information from the world and how, how, how we approach the story of the coronavirus. Some people think that we're a part of nature, that humans are actually natural and a part of nature. Animals? Right. And so the virus would be something that we are a part of. It is a part of us. It's a part of a biome. And that the viruses are around. And that what viruses do is they're like software upgrades. Mm. They come in because things have changed in the environment. We are rapidly changing our environment. And the biome likes is opportunistic. So either the virus, you can look at it as either the virus is trying to uh, upgrade our systems to better deal with our environment, or it's a demon coming to kill us. From the outside. From the outside. Where we are not. Because we are not a part of nature. We are special. We're little monads of of specialness. Yes. In a hostile natural world. And stuff might come to get us. Stuff will come to get us. Right. So this is again we've talked of the difference between germ theory and terrain theory, and I like both of those theories to help understand the world. But the idea that the virus is a bad thing coming to get us seems distinctly Judeo-Christian in its DNA. Mm-hmm. If you are a natural person, really, and you believe in nature and being a part of nature, you would understand that the virus gets you when you have been compromised. You have done some kind of behavior or you are lacking something in your mm-hmm. environment or you're in an intoxic environment that compromises your immune you're system. You're in a very anxiety-inducing environment. Fear, Stress, fear-based stress environment. Stress lessens your, weakens your immune system. You, you eat a lot of sugar. Sugar weakens your immune system. And alcohol and bread are both sugar. Sorry. So we talk about masks a lot, but we don't talk about our immune system a lot. I don't see a lot of memes about how to boost your immune system. Right. I see a lot of very divisive, hostile stuff around mask or no mask because mm-hmm. that's very simple it's not very complex it's also not very effective that that dialogue for education has become more polarizing so um i want to talk about the rise and fall of azt that's an article that was put out in the independent in 1994 uh, uh, and draw a parallel between the way hiv 
AIDS and HIV and AIDS were discussed mm -hmm. in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and the way we're discussing coronavirus to see if we find, can't find some historical parallels. I think we're going to find some historical parallels. You said you wanted to add something? You want to, you want to go in now before we well, go down this road? As a person that grew up in the mindset that humans are um, fearfully and wonderfully made in the glory of God uh -huh. and not animals. Not of nature. We are not animals. Right. We are humans. God made Different. everything else and then he made humans. Special. As is, the way that you see humans now is how we have always been on the planet. Uh -huh. So at least 25% of the U.S. and probably more thinks that. Just popped into the scene. Like one out of four of the people you interact with think that humans appeared on the scene as is on the planet. And that we are specially made in the image of God. And uh, the planet is here to serve us. But because of unfortunately sin, it can also be here to hurt us. I could understand why nature would want to attack that being <laughs> so arrogant. Um, well, only from the perspective that, that you separate. have. It's only arrogant from the perspective that you have that the whole planet is one ecosystem. It's not right. arrogant to us. It's a gift. It's that God made the earth and then uh, he made us and gave the earth to us. Right. There and is that no, we're, there's no objective arrogance. It's not arrogant when you're better. Only subjective arrogance. Yeah. All so... Right. Um, so viruses were hypothesized and discovered in the very, very late 1800s, only about 130 years ago. And during that time, we were going through some massive cultural changes. The Industrial Revolution was taking off. It was the age of Europeans going to other countries and taking land and resources from mm -hmm. people with darker colored skin because whiter people were of necessity closer to God's heart because God cursed ham also they're a little bit they're a little crazy so like it's just unfortunate but it's in the bible that god had a favorite son of noah's sons uh -huh. and then the bad son was the dark son oh, that got sent ham, away right. to yeah, africa yeah. yeah i've heard that so one. like this whole mentality is pervasive in europe at the time they start discovering this bad this thing that seems to make you sick they didn't know all the things that we know back then about right. how ecosystems work together and bodies work together right but they did have the mindset that humans were specially made in the image of god separate from nature Darwin hadn't quite taken off at the time. And so when viruses were being, like we think of, we named computer viruses after, after. environmental viruses, uh -huh. medical viruses, because right. what happens to a computer is something bad comes from the outside and messes with your computer's brain. That's kind of an old, yeah, that's, that's one definition of a virus. Right, but... That's based on this faulty model of the medical virus. So Which let's is based just say, on the faulty model of the Judeo-Christian right. paradigm. So to, to try to tie it all together, like Wrap it up. if we called if we didn't call viruses viruses, if we called them DNA, microbes. DNA upgrades. Microbes. All right. No, I'm just trying to think of like another medical Are thing. they microbes? Well, they're a tiny living thing. See, that's the problem. We we call them names for a reason. They're not living. Like retroviruses, viruses aren't even living, right? What are they then? 
They just, um, they just, they're like a seed packet that comes in, jumps into your DNA. Like pollen? Like RNA. They're not alive? They're RNA that jumps into your DNA. Bacteria is alive, but viruses are not alive. I think. Anyway, it's a little thing that floats right. around in the environment, and okay. scientists started noticing that it floated around the environment, and they started noticing that when certain people encountered this tiny thing floating around in the environment, they got sick. And so, therefore, the tiny thing floating in the environment must be the thing that is bad because humans were made in the glory of God, oh. and if it weren't for sin, and bad things happening to us, we would be perfect like God because that's how we were supposed to be made. It always makes me a little queasy when you talk like that. I'm sorry. I know. Like it, over 25% of the U.S. thinks I, that way. I know. I get it. I get it. It still makes me queasy. <laughs> yeah. And 75% of the U.S. says they're Christians. So, so you might understand why we have the, vir the viral right. narrative that we have. The narrative that this thing we call a virus is a bad thing Boogie out man. to get us and mess up something that was fine alone. Right. And you also have to consider that a large portion of the people who coined and discovered viruses uh, were not yet hip to evolutionary theory. So um, they're, they're, you're not talking about micro and macro evolution. You're not talking about things changing over time you just are as is like we had a very interesting conversation on our drive the other day about like where did dirt come from because in my mind god made rocks dirt rivers somebody, trees yeah that's what somebody told you like that's what i was told when i was right. growing up and that's what i believe for like 27 years is all that it rocks all, were just spontaneously popped on he made all of it as is i like some of them chunky i like some of them round yeah and okay. then maybe they've disintegrated a little over no time reason no reason things get for old. those shapes right creativity yeah. okay creativity and beauty yeah, and 6, variety. Six years, rocks really start to. So, like, that's how I was like, wait a second. If God didn't just say, and then there will be dirt here, where did dirt come from? <laughs> like, how did the first dirt occur on the planet? And we have to think about like um, the people, most many of the people, the mindset of the times when people were discovering and naming this thing mm -hmm. virus right. was not that humans change slowly over time to become a more evolved organism but that humans were created and done. as is and will continue to be this way because this is the best way because we were made in the image of god uh -huh. and so anything trying to change us is bad and evolution doesn't exist right that's a that's a, there's a lot of people that think like that still <laughs> yeah and also, that was the mi <clears throat> mindset of the times when virology was being invented. So the lady that wrote this article, her, her perspective is that, no, viruses, we, because we're a part of nature, viruses, as Sam Thompson said, viruses are not alive. Uh, they're self-replicating RNA systems okay. that inject themselves into your DNA. So they are changing... It's little information packets floating They're around. information packets, right. And sometimes your hardware can handle the new information, and sometimes getting new information glitches your hardware. Sorry. Right. Well, so that's that's kind of the metaphor that I was looking at is like some people can take the upgrade and some people's device fails. Right. With the new upgrade. And so this would not this is not something that was figured out by some folks that decided this is the way it's going to be It's the natural process of things. The thing that makes me uncomfortable is that so many really good friends of mine, very intelligent folks are acting as though. Na they are, we are being besieged by nature. By something outside. Something outside of us is coming to get us. Yeah. And I don't think that's a really healthy or accurate view. 
of how, how and these are some pretty woke the, friends yeah, how who the like ecosystem works. care about ecosystems and environments but that like judeo-christian mindset that humans are separate and special and being attacked by sin or demons or viruses all the time is still just ingrained in our brains right so we talk about people who died from covid19 or sometimes they just say coronavirus, mm-hmm. which is really inaccurate. It's so dangerous because there are so many coronaviruses. So that was a little no- news thing that I posted today that after 17 weeks of quarantine in some Antarctic research station, somebody got a coronavirus in there. So 17 weeks, no coronavirus apparently, mm. and then suddenly coronavirus. That lends itself to what I think the terrain theory, the bioterrain theory, which is we have it already. Yeah. We have elements of it. There's so many virus. We've only just moved into virus research. We only find viruses because we start looking for the viruses. And then they show up as the thing that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. How many viruses, this is the question, how many viruses are already in us mm-hmm. that haven't caused a problem for us? And right. so we haven't looked for them, so we have not found them. Like you can't just do a broad spectrum test for any viruses that might Things be in your that system. that you've never heard of. Like the novel coronavirus, right? right? So the idea is that the virus turns on when something in the environment makes it uh, amenable. Something, the bioterrain of the individual says, I am experiencing um, a failure in my immune system. And then the virus takes advantage of that failure Mm -hmm. versus the virus causing the failure. Mm -hmm. And so when you get the re when you get the results, the antibodies, so when antibodies start being produced, that's when the, the, the virus starts activating and replicating. But that virus may have been there for days, weeks, months, mm-hmm. and didn't do anything. And it may not do anything if the conditions don't make it hospitable. If conditions remain balanced its, in the body. To its function. So does right? that mean we need to get sick sometimes so that we can continue to evolve like a that, like that a butterfly be, shedding its cocoon? Right. That seems to be the thing. These viruses come to deliver things to our DNA. That's a, that's, that's a, a different way of looking at it than their demons coming to get you. Mm-hmm. So when I hear people confusing a hundred some odd thousand deaths because of COVID-19, how many of those are just regular flu would be a lot for regular flu, which would make that number a lot smaller. I would bet more than half smaller. I would bet. So you're saying um, a bunch of these tests and deaths that people are saying are COVID-19. COVID-19 might actually be one of the other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Right. So what we know at this point is 80% of the people who are tested positive with the virus or get the virus never show anything. Mm-hmm. They just get it and then it just hangs out and either goes away or just hangs out mm-hmm. because they don't have a... Uh, a condition that allows it to flourish. So so out of the 100,000 some odd people that died, a vast majority of them... In the U.S. In the U.S., a vast majority of them, 80 some odd percent died, had some pre-existing condition when they died of this thing. They had a weak immune system. Which is what happens with the flu. Now, I'm not saying, oh, it's just like the flu, and I also have a Confederate flag. I'm not saying that. <laughs> That's what everybody goes. Oh, and you love Trump too. Yeah. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. No, guys, this is I'm a scientific inquiry. If you look at who dies, it's the same people who die from the flu. Same age group, same risk groups. And that's unfortunate that people are dying from the flu. Yes. Uh, we've had a good run where our lifespan has increased decade after decade after decade. Uh, people who are at the end of their lifespan would not have lived that long 
30 years ago, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now they're living that long, and they're the first ones to get picked off because they're fragile. So that's unfortunate. What I'm understanding is that the hype over the virus was overblown. That the shutdown was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we look at other... The mass debate is fairly moot. If we look at other pandemics, and we actually have a lot of data now from yeah. the past hundred years where we can actually look at pandemics and how many people died, like shutdown or no shutdown, mask or no mask, it doesn't make a difference. The virus is going to do what it's going to do. So we're in what you would call this a flu season. Luckily, we're in the summer. So um, the idea, according to Michael Levitt, is if that virus is moving through the human population in warmer times, it's better for people to get it in warmer times than colder times because fewer people who are who contract it will die. You're less immunocompromised when the sun is out. So that's a silver lining to the cloud. If we're dealing with coronavirus and it spiked in March and it's falling out through the summer, the more people that get it in the summer, the better. The better for them. Mm-hmm. Because if they get it in the winter, they're going to be more prone to immunocompromisation. Guess what weakens your immune system? Lack of sunshine. Right. Yeah, vitamin D apparently has been a big thing. A lot of people are finding that vitamin D is very important in whether or not you get COVID-19. Whether or not you suffer symptoms of experiencing the virus. Even better, yes. So those numbers I find troubling because people say, this many people were tested positive. I'm like, well, and how many of those people are going to get sick? Very, very, very few of those people are going to get sick. And so that number, many, yeah. so let's look at that number. Real, okay, so out of all the people that tested, how many people got sick? How many people died? The death rate is going down. Cases are going up. Death rate is going down. Cases as in people who may or may not have COVID-19 in their nose. <laughs> yes. So, so that sort of uh, fuzziness of the numbers where people see X amount of people died and then their alarm goes off and then they want to punch Trump, that cycle... <laughs> is alarming because it's not good science. It's not good information. It's more of a religion than it is a science. And as former cult members, we can recognize when people are behaving religiously as opposed to scientifically. When we started watching the numbers go up, one of the things I mentioned to you, Ainsley, was like this reminds me of what happened back in the early 90s with HIV and AIDS. Which you actually lived through. Which I lived through. And then I, in my nascent conspiracy theory, early 20-something, before the internet, where you had to go check out books and talk to the weirdo to get your conspiracy theories. You had to talk to the actual weirdo, not just some... The person who'd just, been collecting all the not info. Not just some meme online. Not um, just a blog. So uh, I, I got a hold of some, some periodicals, <laughs> uh, some fringe books... That we're talking about Zines. the distressing way that uh, HIV and AIDS were being discussed. Yeah. And so if you don't know anything about HIV AIDS, they, the story is that HIV, if you get the virus, HIV, which is a retrovirus, if you get the retrovirus HIV, then you are susceptible to getting AIDS. Mm-hmm. And according to the, 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 the orthodoxy, story, according the orthodoxy, to, to the orthodoxy, the dogma. HIV causes AIDS. Right. You get a- AIDS. Right. Quote unquote, because you first got HIV. Because you first got HIV. And we're going to break all that right. down. So <laughs> HIV is the retrovirus that causes the syndrome. This is the orthodoxy that causes the syndrome called AIDS, where mm-hmm. you die from immunocompromised things. So they talked about AIDS. And then they said HIV causes AIDS, and then they started doing HIV slash AIDS. Mm-hmm. However, and sometimes they just say HIV AIDS. HIV AIDS. 
they say it that way, yes. So many people get HIV that never get AIDS. The majority of people who get HIV never get AIDS. Okay. So people get HIV, they would be what you would call non-symptomatic. They test, they test positive for HIV, then they get added into the HIV AIDS list. So many, many people have HIV, live their entire life, don't know it. Right. But Many people so, know it, mm -hmm. and then they are scared for a lot of their life because they are convinced they're going to get AIDS. Mm -hmm. What has come out of the data is AIDS is more of a lifestyle issue, and this is like a word that sends off red flags in the LGBT community because what they're, and I'll get to some of this in the article, AIDS predominantly affects gay males, not gay females, but gay males. And we're going to talk about why and specifically having to do with the 80s and 90s, why. And like, you know, if somebody tells you, if somebody has to tell you, trust me, that, you know, don't trust them. Right. right? So you guys are going to have to judge for yourselves whether you feel that Dark and I are <laughs> L allies of the LGBTQ right, plus right. community. Allies, um, you know, I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I guess you would say, member, since I'm bisexual and polyamorous. Right. But, like, we are fierce allies, and we educate ourselves, and we have a lot of friends in the community that we interact with regularly. And these this information is put out here um, um, scientifically and with respect to the people who have suffered through this epidemic either suffered through it because they were brainwashed by the story of the times or suffered through it because they have a loved one who passed away from quote unquote AIDS. Right. Like we are not saying that we don't care about the suffering. I, I'm trying to break down the way information is disseminated and how it affects our behaviors. So when they, they found out that the, the lot, the vast majority of people who were dying for AIDS uh, of AIDS were people who were in what they called the gay lifestyle. So at the time. At the time. Mm -hmm. The gay lifestyle in the early 80s was very different than the gay lifestyle at the end of the 80s. And when I say gay lifestyle, I'm talking about what was the national narrative, which was the club goers, the people who were um, uh, inclined to uh, have multiple sexual partners in a week have uh, do a lot of drug experimentation or abuse, right? This is where it was those groups where the acquired immune deficiency syndrome hit hardest. Right. And then when other people, but then when they connected HIV with AIDS and they started testing for HIV, then they found people outside of those groups had HIV and were afraid they would get AIDS. Mm -hmm. So... Bear with us. This is going to be a little sticky. Yeah. So what happens is the there's if you go to Wikipedia, you'll find the HIV AIDS denialist page, which is interesting because they make it seem like there's some uh, like the uh, Holocaust denialists that the HIV AIDS denialists are denying that HIV is the cause of AIDS. Um, which they are. They're saying HIV is not the cause of AIDS because we have not seen proof mm. of that. This is complicated. It's very complicated. Mm -hmm. So, and then they make it seem as though the people who are the denialists are there for fame and fortune. However, 
the people that I've looked into who are the denialists have lost their fortune. They've lost their careers. They've lost their ability to teach. Um, and so it doesn't seem like there's a big incentive to be against the medical orthodoxy. Right. There's no financial incentive to be against the medical orthodoxy. So it's sticky when you get into the history of this thing. I, I did some research on AZT, which uh, it was used on HIV people as a preventative for AIDS from 1985 to 1993. It turns out that it did nothing to prevent AIDS, and inversely, it served to compromise healthy immune systems. Uh, for many, immunodeficiency was acquired by taking AZT. So AZT was a drug that they thought might be helpful for people in um, to keep advanced, them from getting AIDS. No, no, no. Oh, okay. They thought it was important for people. They found some successful results in people who had advanced AIDS. They gave them AZT. It seemed to extend their life and reduce some of the problems. So then there was a big leap where they just decided, I have HIV and HIV causes AIDS, so I should take AZT and then I won't get AIDS. It turns out that AZT, like a chemotherapy, taken over long periods of time, weakens your immune system. Chemotherapy weakens your immune system. So the narrative for a long time was, see, AZT kept them from getting AIDS for this long, then they got it. But it turns out is that these people had HIV, if they had a lifestyle that wasn't compromising their immune system, may never have gotten AIDS if they weren't taking the preventative for AIDS. Right. So that's a story. You can find the article. It's called The Rise and Fall of AZT. It's a independent, uh, the the UK paper, The Independent. It's from 1994. They have it archived online. Okay. Can it's you share really, that link in our Facebook yeah. feed? It's a really interesting breakdown of even the people who were allies of the HIV AIDS sufferers were being funded by the company that was making AZT. At the time when they found out AZT was possibly more dangerous than helpful, it was the second biggest income earner for this for this uh, pharmaceutical company. So it's still out there. The drug has not been banned. The drug was used for almost a decade in giving it to HIV people. And it was a, a $10,000 a month drug or $10,000 a year drug for Oof, a lot of the people that took geez. it. You had to take it every four hours, which, which meant that... Interrupting your sleep. Right, right. And so every four hours, you're thinking about, I'm going to take these so I don't die from a thing that I might not have died from if I didn't take these things. And there's a large group of people who have since come together and realized that, that they were all getting so sick while taking this medication to try to keep them from getting AIDS that they decided, well, to heck with it. I'm rather die and be able to enjoy going on a walk than live while being super sick from this medicine that's supposed to be helping me. And so they stopped taking AZT and then recovered and were never sick. Right. So the article that I just shared, um, The Rise and Fall of AZT, talks about, and again, this is from 1994, so it's, uh, there's, there's been new information since then, but not about this particular case and what was happening right then, which was the testing, usual, it's about 8 to 10 years, I think about 8 to 10 years. So the FDA's stringent testing requirements meant that most new drugs take between 8 to 10 years to pass from development to marketplace. AZT was pushed through in just 20 months. Ugh. 
That's um, what they want us to do for the COVID-19 and virus. And that's what they're saying now. They're saying, boy, we just have to stay inside until we get right. the thing. I'm just going to homeschool my five-year-old until two years from now we have a v- vaccine. To make sure the thing is not going to do something unintended, unintended consequences, means that um, if it doesn't take eight to ten years to do the testing to find out if other unintended consequences occur, that means getting something that's not going to be tested. And there will be a lot of people who will line up to take an untested thing because of the fear over the narrative of coronavirus. So I brought this out as a cautionary tale. So what happened is people started saying HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. So you can test a population and lots of people have HIV. And then they reported reported the stories by saying HIV AIDS, which meant all those people were probably going to die of AIDS. And that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. A minority of people with HIV died. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. I love you. For more information about Dark and Ainsley and on our social media linkage, visit betadi.me online. That's betadi.me. Post-orthodoxy. Post-orthodoxy. An outpost in the borderlands. What's outside your reality bubble? Now back to our show. This is the post-orthodoxy show. We're here for another hour or less. And we're talking about HIV, AIDS, AZT, SARS-CoV-2, and other acronyms that affect your life in ways you may not understand. Right. (laughs) So what we found in that 1994 article were some things that are not surprising to me. Again, 94, I was still looking into all this stuff and finding out that the, the hype... Because I was raised in the age where I was coming into my sexual life being told that we're all going to die. That you could spit on somebody and give them AIDS. Turns out that's not the case. People were doing that with COVID too. When COVID came on, there were people who claimed to have COVID that were spitting on people, trying to give them COVID. It's, it's Gosh, the same things. That's crazy. It's the same things that were happening during the HIV AIDS People were like, it's of, not real, so I'm going to spit on you. There's a narrative that goes around it that's really interesting. So um, I'm going to read part of this article. The article that I, uh, the rise and fall of AZT, independent UK article. Um, I'm going to read from the article right here. Once AZT was shown to have worked, again, it worked on some people with advanced AIDS. It had some positive effects for them. Once AZT was shown to have worked, almost all available funds were channeled to support its development and other potential treatments, along with any doubts that HIV was the cause of AIDS were swept aside. So once the premise of HIV causes AIDS went into play, tons of money went into that premise. Mm, So to challenge that premise challenged a lot of money for a lot of research labs, a lot of companies. If that, what seems to be a tenuous tie that HIV causes AIDS, if that were to break, that's billions of dollars that are on the line and a lot of jobs and a lot of careers and a lot of reputations. Mm. This is the problem with orthodox science becoming more of a religion. Orthodox. Becoming more of a religion than an actual scientific endeavor. And if you look into the denialist, the HIV AIDS denialist, they're actually asking for a little more rigor. From what, I, from what I've read and the people that I've been listening to, they're mm-hmm. actually looking for... They're not just saying it doesn't exist. Right. Um, 
Further from the article, it says, but 1986, AZT was unstoppable. It suited the FDA because it showed the administration, the presidential administration, was doing something. It suited the pharmaceutical company because it now had a patent on AZT. And by 1986, with the epidemic increasing alarmingly, there was no doubt that the financial rewards would be enormous. Now, the company made a ton of money from the sales of AZT. But the real money came from their stock going through the roof mm-hmm. because the news was this is an epidemic. Nobody knows what to do, anything, anything to do about and it. So These guys might have something. invested in the yes. drug that everyone is going to have to buy. No, they invested in the company that produced the drug. Ugh. So all the shareholders of that company that did nothing about the drug, whatever, they, it, it got uh, some rich people richer. Right. Right. So... Um, It suited Welcome because it now had a patent on AZT, and by 1986, with the epidemic increasing alarmingly, there was no doubt that the financial rewards would be enormous. It suited doctors because they believed they could help their patients, Mm. and it certainly suited people with AIDS. Some people had doubts, but hell, if you were ill and dying, you wanted to believe. After all the despair and uncertainty, people in authority were saying, take this, it'll do you good. So people just started listening to the authorities. And a lot of people died. They're saying hundreds of thousands of people died. Because they started taking AZT when they were only dealing with the HIV HIV virus. And not AIDS. And it weakened their immune system further, which made them susceptible to those illnesses. Right. So there's some denialism and there's some stories. That's an actual story. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's the history of what happened when they took an untested drug and just made uh, somewhat willy-nilly applications for it and killed people. Right. It's something that I think is cautionary when we're looking at a vaccine for COVID-19. Uh, it's not something that should be rushed. A vaccine for a virus. Right. So there's another article I wanted to get into uh, by Celia Farber, something I read from, from earlier. Now, she's definitely, this is more of an editorial. She is a person who interviewed the guy that made the test that we used to test for coronavirus, the polymerase chain reaction. It was that test that made HIV a thing. People tested for HIV on AIDS victims, and they didn't have HIV. Then this this (sighs) test, the polymerase, what's it called? Polymerase uh, chain reaction test was the thing that picked up the tiniest fragments of HIV that were in people's system, probably not doing much of anything, Mm -hmm. and said they had enough of these fragments to be considered HIV positive. When was the last time you researched viral load? Right. Because you have a lot of viruses in your system all the time, but until you have enough of a certain virus in your system to start overloading your immune system's abilities to deal with them in a coherent way you're not going to be sick from that virus. Viral load is important. One of the things scientists are discovering all over the the planet right now as they continue to test people for uh, COVID-19 is that people's viral loads are going down everywhere. Mm. Sure, there are more positive tests coming out, but those positive tests have less and less less of the virus in the person. So it feels like the 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 PCR test... Invented by a guy named Kerry Mullis. When he invented it, so this guy is, a, again, another Nobel laureate character. Of the invention, the London Observer wrote, not since James Watt walked across Glasgow Green in 1765 and realized that the secondary steam condenser would transform steam power, 
an inspiration that set loose the Industrial Revolution, has a single momentous idea been so well recorded in time and place? That's what he's saying about the test. PRC test. Is that the test we're using for COVID-19 test. right yes, now? Yes, the PCR test. Okay. So this test was considered... Highly lauded. A, a big breakthrough, right? So the guy that invented it, Kerry Mullis, you know, he's like one of those, uh, you know, genius types. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so from this article, which I stated earlier, the article called... I'm going to post a link to that on the, on the thing right now, too. This is an article called, Was the COVID-19 Test meant to detect a virus. So I'm sending that, I'm putting that in the comment section of our Facebook feed right now. Um, Kevy Keen is listening in from Portland and she's right on track with what you're saying great. about Peter Duesberg and Carrie Mullis. Right. So this is from the article. Uh, PCR played a central role in the HIV war, a war you don't know about that lasted 22 years between globalist postmodern HIV scientist and classical scientist. Some leading language there. Classical some, meaning a fancy word for people who don't like to change their minds when new information comes no, around? No, classical meaning uh, let's not rush a thing. Classical uh, science, they want to see all the papers and they cl- want to oh, do all the footnotes. Okay, classical is, an, is a word for like, um, where, where are your sources? <laughs> right, exactly. Let's really do the scientific that's, theory, guys. That's how she's using it in this article, Okay. Uh, one of Duesberg's strongest arguments that he's probably the leading denialist, what they would call a denialist or a denialist. truther or whatever you want to oh, call him. Oh, gosh. One of Duesberg's... See, when did truther become like... A derogatory, a derogatory term. You want the truth? Who are you, a nut? Anyway. Wow. One of like... Duesberg's strongest arguments in the debate has been that the HIV virus is barely detectable in people who suffer from AIDS. Ironically, when PCR was applied to HIV research around 1989... Researchers claimed to have put this complaint to rest. Using the new technology, this test, they were suddenly able to see viral particles in the quantities they couldn't see before. Scientific articles poured forth stating that HIV was now 100 times more prevalent than was previously thought because they found basically a microscope that enabled them to see 100 times more. What was already there better. But Mullis himself was unimpressed. PCR made it easier to see that certain people are infected with HIV, he told Spin in 1992. And some of those people came down with the symptoms of AIDS. But that doesn't begin to even answer the question, does HIV cause it? So here's another outtake from the article. Uh, This person published, Carrie, uh, published in uh, 1994. uh, Which includes uh, Carrie Mullis, PCR, HIV, and Tony Fauci. Um, which I'm not going to get to the Tony Fauci part because that's a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, PCR... Anyway, he was wrong a lot. He, yeah, he was wrong a lot. <laughs> that's the short version. Uh, PCR has also had a great impact on the field of AIDS or rather HIV research. PV, PCR can, among other things, detect HIV in people who test negative for the antibody test. So here is from the article. This is Mullis, the guy who invented the test in this article. I'm waiting to be convinced that we're wrong, Mullis continues. I know it ain't going to happen, but if it does, I'll tell you this much, I will be the first person to admit it. A lot of people um, studying this disease are looking for clever little pathways they can piece together that will show how this works. 
like what if this molecule was produced by this one and then this one by this one and then what if this one and that one induces this one that stuff becomes after two molecules conjecture of the rankest kind people who sit there and talk about it don't realize that molecules themselves are somewhat hypothetical and that their interactions are even more so mm -hmm. and that the biological reactions are even more so you don't need to look that far. You just have to look at what the hell is going on. Well, here's a bunch of people that are practicing a new set of behavioral norms. Apparently, it didn't work because a lot of them got sick. That's so the conclusion. here are a bunch of people doing new kinds of sex, a.k.a. the gay communities in the 80s and 90s, and trying a bunch of drugs. And new they're sex. unhealthy, therefore, uh, gay sex and lots of drugs are bad well, what he's saying is it didn't work because a lot of them got sick. So he's looking from an evolutionary sense, right. right? New behaviors. A lot of people got sick. So that's the conclusion. You don't necessarily need to know why it happened, but you can start there. Start mm -hmm. with the group. Right. Start who with got the group sick who and got why? sick. They started with this idea that HIV was causing them to get sick when we knew it was a high-risk group mm -hmm. with certain lifestyles that were getting sick. And just for instead of focusing on that, they yeah. focused on way down the road that HIV may have been the cause to make it a universal thing and put the whole world into a panic. Right. When it's when it's actually like and what we mean by lifestyles, because we know that life's the whole lifestyle conversation is a bit of a triggering conversation for members of the LGBTQ community who lived through a ton of discrimination and torture and public censure. Um, yes for just wanting to do things that made them happy. So... The, well, it was experimental. The 80s were very experimental. So, this yeah. Was on, this was Fresh on, off the Cultural Revolution. You had the Cultural Revolution. You had the beginning of the gay rights movement, which is where they're coming out of the closet. The they're, internet they're, was happening. Which is amazing. <laughs> and then these clubs open up, mm -hmm. and then there is a morphing. And this is a, an evolutionary thing. People are thing. trying new things. People tried new things. Some of it didn't go so well. There, yeah. were, there I don't think you, you can... People can argue with you when you say there there might have been some egg excess yeah. in the gay club scene of the early 80s. As there in, might have been a little drug excess, right. sex excess in terms of having a healthy immune system and mm -hmm. doing that lifestyle. If you are going to do, if you are going to try a bunch of chemicals, there are ways that you can try those chemicals that do not cause you harm. Well, we and have a... Instead, yeah because you're just not supposed to do chemicals. There wasn't education or harm reduction education around those sorts of things. And people were trying a bunch of chemicals in ways that caused them to be immunosuppressed. Right. And we have a punitive uh, drug uh, policy and not a medical drug policy. Right. And so there wasn't the resources available. It's morally based instead of scientifically instead based. Instead of scientifically based. So this is where I can defer to you and the research that you've been doing. That's my basic, the stuff that I came up with. I think the HIV AIDS fudging of the numbers, that's the biggest thing that I came down to. When they say HIV AIDS, that means everybody with HIV is being included in the AIDS bracket, mm. and that's way not correct. And the CDC is doing that. The WHO is doing that. Governmental websites mm -hmm. always connect HIV with AIDS. And, and they make it something... Yeah, they're, they're making it uh, difficult. Right. It's not a scientific way of talking about what's going on because HIV and AIDS are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And um, we've had some comments from Kevy in Portland that I want to get to. Yeah. But I just wanted to like, you know, it helps. Like we're both uh, 
our horoscopes tell us that we're very different people. That's true. And uh, yet we get along really well. I think we are very different, sort of like two puzzle pieces are very different. Mm. And the ways that we describe things, I hope, are helpful to people that are wondering like what's going on in the world. If you're not somebody, if you just want to know, if you just want someone to tell you what's going on in the world, this isn't the right radio show for you. But like if you're somebody that's wondering what's going on, mm. we are also wondering. Yes. And we can provide you with pathways that we've wondered down. You know, we made that put on a T-shirt. Pathways I have wandered down, you know, and like do a little pathway through the woods, like two roads diverged in the wood and I took the one less traveled by. Welcome to post-orthodoxy. Mm. I hope Robert Louis Stevenson, no. Was that Robert Frost? That was probably Robert Frost. <laughs> Not Robert. Robert Louis Stevenson did Treasure Planet. Uh, Treasure Island. Treasure Island, right. <laughs> Robert Frost did two roads diverged in the woods. That's right. And it's probably not copyrighted, so we're fine. Okay. That was a long time ago. <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about some of the things you were talking about, but like using Ainsley words. Please. So um, HIV and AIDS are not the same thing. But no. Scientifically. It's so weird that they just put them in the they same. They just say HIV they're the AIDS. same thing. So HIV AIDS. Human immunodeficiency virus. Acquired immuno. No, no. The HIV. Oh. Uh, it's some. No. HIV is like an acronym for some incredibly long human immunodeficiency virus oh is that okay there's another name for it that was more complex but yes that's what they came down to so so they named this thing it's so after the human immunodeficiency virus are two species of lentivirus okay that infect humans over time these two species of lentivirus cause acquired immunodeficiency syndrome a condition in which progressive failure of the immune system allows life-threatening opportunistic infections and cancers to thrive. And who said that? Wikipedia. Okay. I think this is the clearest breakdown. If you take time to actually unpack what all of those words mean and understand what's going on. Okay. And so I just want to walk through it step by Please. step. So HIV exists on the planet. That's what the I've heard. Humans exist. They can test for it and Be- find it. Beetles exist. Right. Daffodils exist. HIV, HIV exists. exists. Right. The AIDS thing we call. Yeah. does not exist. It's AIDS a s- is a symptom. A symptom of? HIV. A s- symptom, syndrome. It's like, I know that symptom and syndrome are not, syn- AIDS doesn't, AIDS isn't floating around out there. No, AIDS is not floating around you out there. You can't catch AIDS. You don't catch AIDS. You catch HIV. That's and the then, story. Well, yeah. You catch like you, you catch ca- HIV. You catch the common cold okay. virus, right? Yeah. So HIV exists on the planet. Mm-hmm. And if you get to a point where you have a viral load in your system of a- of the human immunodeficiency viruses that are mm-hmm. so high, then your immune system becomes too weak to fight off other infections and illnesses. So then you get tuberculosis and pneumonia, pneumonia meningitis, and thrush, cervical cancer, etc. So, so what makes so you could have HIV and not have a high viral load of HIV. Yeah. You can have HIV and be on um retro uh retro encabulator. You can be <laughs> on medicines to support your immune system. Ah. And not actually be in danger of pneumonia or thrush or meningitis. Right. So you can get HIV and never develop the viral load. Necessary. Re- necessary to get what they call AIDS. Right. To okay. weaken your immune system so much that you might die from pneumonia. 
So if I got pneumonia right now, as far as I know about my health and my immune system, the massive amounts of vitamin C that I take every day, the sunshine that I get, my age, not having smoked before, if I got pneumonia right now, I would survive. I would probably survive, right? Um, Someone else who eats sugar all the time is middle-aged, did smoke for a long time, uh, has asthma, you know, and like works at a computer all day long, would probably be sicker longer with pneumonia than me because- angry at Trump all the time. <laughs> Stress also weakens Stress. your immune system. Yeah. So we're talking about our immune systems. I, yes. It's not that like one person doesn't catch the illness and the other person does. It's that we're all encountering these viruses and illnesses and infections. And some people have more, a stronger immune system to fight them off than other people do. So that goes to the terrain theory idea yeah. that the viruses are going to, you're going to, they're just going to come and go mm-hmm. and you get sick not because of the virus. Right. But because of the strength or weakness of your immune but system. But this is saying that you get the virus and because of the virus, you get AIDS. They're using the word HIV causes AIDS. Causes it. And I understand but, and that AIDS that isn't makes a thing. you. It's a series of. HIV, yeah. I think, induces AIDS okay. would okay. be more accurate. All right. HIV. Being infected over time with a viral load of HIV weakens your immune system to the extent that you have an excessively weak immune system, which we call AIDS. All right. So we're just going to continue going down this road. Yeah. And then when you die, if you die of pneumonia, you didn't die from AIDS. It's like... You died from pneumonia. You died from pneumonia. It's like... But that would be called an AIDS death if you had HIV. It's like saying you died of depression. Okay. So trigger warning for people that struggle with this, right? Right. It's like saying you died of depression. You didn't die of depression. You You lived in an abusive household. You acquired depression because of the environment you were in and the struggles you were having. And then you killed yourself. Right. You died of suicide. You didn't die of depression. Right. That's like the best analogy I can come up with spur of the moment. Right. HIV weakens your immune system, which enables you to have a weak immune system. And then you die of a candida overgrowth or See, cervical that's what, cancer. That's what the deniers are saying is not true. Are they? I, I believe so. They're saying what? They're saying they're AIDS saying doesn't HIV, exist? No, or? they're saying HIV does not cause AIDS. Okay. They're saying that lots of people have HIV. And lots of people have HIV. It's yeah. a virus that floats around. Like There's a lot of viruses we haven't isolated yet that we're all carrying around. Yeah. So lots of people have HIV. Certain people with HIV die, and there's certain people with other things that they're doing that compromise their immune system, mm-hmm. that it wasn't the HIV. It's like saying you died, you got tested, like I, let's say I, my dad got tested mm-hmm. positive for COVID. Which he did. Which he did. <laughs> and then he died in a car wreck on the way home, mm-hmm. and they did a test. They, that's one story. That's one story that we've heard. Somebody that has died, happened. Some kid died in a motorcycle wreck. It was marked as a COVID death. Because the hospital marked it as a coronavirus death. The, parents, had, the right. parents weren't able to get insurance on the accident to provide for their kid's funeral. So that's an extreme version of the story. Mm-hmm. Like That doesn't happen all the time, but there's a lot of really fudgy numbers going on. So if you die from some disease and you also had COVID... You maybe you had a pre-existing condition mm-hmm. and you got COVID and died from your pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. You're still saying you died of COVID, right? 
that's the same thing I think is going on with HIV and AIDS. You didn't is that there's lots of people who are dying from immune problems. Yes, because coronavirus if, weakened their immune system to the point that their diabetes killed them. Right, which they were already struggling with. Yes. So the idea that HIV AIDS is that if you die of an AIDS related illness and you have HIV, you died of AIDS. If you die of an AIDS-related illness and you don't have HIV, it's not AIDS. And that's the thing that makes it really difficult for it me. It pisses people off. Yeah. Because that's not, that's not scientifically what's going on. No, like, it's really simplistic. Like if I have had asthma my whole life, I always have to be careful in allergy season. I always have to avoid people with pneumonia. If I have asthma, I always have to be a little more careful because my my to keep my immune system strong enough that it can take care of my asthma, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But if I were to encounter enough enough COVID-19 to a point where I have a viral load of COVID-19 overwhelming my immune system, my asthma would overwhelm me to a point I might die. Well, this is the point. Maybe you don't encounter enough COVID-19. You get COVID-19 and it creates the viral load within you because your system is weakened. weakened. Mm -hmm. You didn't just encounter enough COVID out there. Bing, 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 bing. No. Well, no, it is. You got it. Mm -hmm. And it had a environment in your biome mm, that allowed it to, to grow replicate and give you the viral right. load that gives you uh, a sickness so for instance i'm not a doctor here and i'm looking for any doctor that wants to contradict we could also read a yeah. nice review from our veterinarian friend from last week's show yeah that would be on your phone because it was okay. a text message very good uh go ahead and pull that up and i will because like if like everybody has candida in their systems. It's everybody, you think so? That's what I've been told. Right. Like it's a thing that lives in humans, in organisms. If you eat a lot of sugars and are stressed and aren't getting enough sunshine, you can have a candida overgrowth, which causes yeast infections and extreme thirst and problems in your ears and all kinds of anxiety and joint inflammation problems is this overgrowth. And so what you could do is either take like um, antibiotics and whack out the, bi the biome in your body to the point that the candida is spanked into submission, or you can stop eating sugars, start taking walks, drink more water and get more sunshine and naturally create a healthier environment in your body so that the candida is like, oh, I, I can't actually be that crazy in this body because this body is too healthy. Uh, do we want to talk about a comment from a friend of the show last week that were saying that we were spouting our own orthodox? Do we want to deal, do we want to deal with that issue? Let's do the nice comment first and then we can talk about okay, the Okay, very comment. good. Yeah. Uh, we're open to all feedback on our show. We really do want to be having a conversation with you guys. We aren't just saying uh, all that other stuff was fake truth and this is the real truth. Yeah. I do want to, orthodoxy means that we're, the, somebody is saying this is the one and only way and everything else is incorrect. Yeah. We are dealing with looking at orthodoxies, how to get past orthodoxies, mm -hmm. some of the conditions that are created that allow you to get past orthodoxies, some of the struggles that are encountered to I, get out of an orthodoxy. We are not saying yeah. our, <laughs> our, our analysis <laughs> of orthodoxies is the one and only way. Mm -mm. We are. I guess we're inquiring. talking about the uh, the fr other friend of the show yeah. first. So anyway, I just want to be no. clear on that. You want you want to deal with I that? I mean, we're already into it. Okay. So so uh, last week, a friend of the show, um, I guess I'll just say friend. Yeah. Um, who's a close personal friend of ours? Uh, 
was angry about the mask stuff. We were talking about how maybe social distance, like we're kind of getting some information more and more and more that social distancing is more important than wearing a mask and that maybe just everybody wearing a mask isn't actually keeping us safe. Right. And he got really mad and angry in our comments on our live stream and was talking, was basically saying, you guys act like you're trying to be um, like post-Orthodox, but you're actually being super religious in your comments. And and so I I guess I just want to clarify, like having a strong opinion does not mean (laughs) that's not an orthodoxy it's is not a dogma like i have strong opinions based on the research and the learning that i'm doing and when i encounter new information i include that i am i am strongly opinionatedly learning so that seems to be what happened is that person encountered new information and doubled down on the old information Mm -hmm. rather than saying maybe there's some new information right um, it's, it's unfortunate and it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. It's very difficult to change your mind Yeah. because it makes you feel retroactively unsafe. You were wrong all along. And what does that mean about me as a person? It's, it's very complicated and very difficult. Confirmation bias is a real thing yeah. for people. They really like information that matches what they already know. And when we hear it's natural for us as animals on the planet to, uh, not want to know that we were wrong the whole time because that might have meant we might have gotten eaten by a bear back then. Right. And that's the primal mode behind not wanting to hear new information. And obviously nowadays you're not going to get eaten by a bear in your past if you find out that wearing a mask wasn't the best thing in the world. But in a, in a very fear-based and anxiety-inducing chaotic environment like the one that we have in the U.S. today, knowing, feeling like you know what's going on and what the right answer is is just this balm you're trying to put on a fourth-degree burn. Right. So uh, we do, we got half an hour left in the show, but I'd like to take a moment because sometimes we wait to, too late in the show and we don't get to deal with feedback from our folks, which we are always asking for. Yes. We're always looking for people who can give me, so I really spent a lot of time. I have strong opinions and love changing my mind. Yeah, I had a lot of, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at the HIV AIDS thing in relation, the story and the narrative in relation to the story and the narrative of the COVID-19 thing, because I see a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. And I am not saying that the denialists are right. I'm not saying that the dogma is incorrect. I'm saying that it's a debate that we should be having and that if you choose a side without being open to exploring the other stuff, I feel like it's dangerous. That's non-scientific. That's not, that's religion. That's not science. So uh, we did get some positive feedback after the show. Uh, And I'll just leave the guy anonymous here. Um, But he says, you guys are so refreshing. And he does what a lot of people say. They're not going to say it publicly. They're not going to say it in the comments. Right. But they'll say it afterwards because they don't want to get trolled because they're afraid of being trolled. Because people are afraid of admitting that they like to have conversations like this because of what is that old saying? If you are if you have too open of a mind, your brain your might brain fall, fall out. out. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, yeah, having an open mind doesn't mean I can't have strong opinions, guys. Anyway, this guy is like a world renowned in the medical field and travels all over the world veterinarian field. To, do, to do medical veterinary stuff. Yes. Uh, at really famous events. <laughs> so he says, uh, you guys are so refreshing. I really want to comment, but I think I get trolled. Truth is we need some really good veterinarians to take control of this virus. We deal with biosecurity, containment, trackbacks, testing, surveying population, benefit risk decisions. We live and breathe protecting our food sources from foreign animal diseases. The guy, which is the Michael Levitt, that's the guy that we played a five-minute, eight-minute quote from him last week, 
The guy is awesome. This is literally the best information articulated so well between you guys and him I have heard through the whole pandemic. And it echoes the sentiments of the circles I know of some really smart epidemiologists. So thank you for the positive feedback. Um, friend of the show. Friend of the show. And so I feel like what he's saying is like um, to get a little meta for a second okay, on this, this whole pandemic. Meta. The planet's going to be fine. planet's going to be fine. And... The human race, at least for a few more hundred years, yeah. is going to be fine. Well, the virus-wise, maybe not. Like, the virus aside, we there may be other factors that may not make a couple hundred years a viable option. But You don't... You, environmentalism is a whole other conversation. Yeah. yeah. But as far as, as, far as like... viruses go. Most of the lifetimes right now yeah. are going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the planet is going to be fine. Majority, for better or worse. The human race is going to continue a little bit longer. We are the virus. We're not going to get knocked out by COVID-19. And all of that is important to talk about because people who have had loved ones who've died in the hospital mm, horribly while suffering from complications brought on by coronavirus, yep. those people want to do everything possible to keep their loved ones alive. Yes. Alive is the goal. Right. I just want them alive and here with me. I want to stay alive so I can raise my kids. Alive is the, just stay alive, right? right? And so like, this is the part where people might say, well, Dark and Ainsley are really heartless and we're really, really not heartless and we really care and we love our elderly friends and we love our immunocompromised friends and uh, we're also aware those people could just die anytime. Right. And that's, that's life. Unfortunately, yes. I guess is what you say. Um, and so to, to be really meta about this whole thing and with our friend of the show's comment about we really need to be looking at this from more of a numbers and a um, risk assessment perspective than just a try to keep everyone alive perspective. Mm. Because like, for instance, we're not talking... Not everybody's at the same risk. We're talking about kids going back to school or not. Yeah. Like yeah. people being isolated in their homes for months and months and months with no outside support or interaction is not a healthy human society. And instead of just trying to keep everyone alive, lowest common denominator, just alive, we could be having more conversations, which some people might call heartless about how even if... 0.2% of the planet's population die because COVID-19 weakens their immune system so much their diabetes kills them. It's going to be less than 0.1 apparently. The planet and human society will be able to continue to go on and to be thriving and to be living, not just being alive. Right. And that's the sort of like risk assessment conversations that we're not having in the U.S. especially and definitely not on Facebook because the goal is to just keep everyone alive. And we do mean everyone, even if, I mean, it really is like all those old stories you read or like, what was that one movie where Bruce Willis was an oil driller and they oh, sent geez. him to the asteroid? Right. What, like, what was that movie? Uh, Armageddon. Armageddon. So if Bruce Willis stays behind on the asteroid and dies detonating the bomb, the entire planet will be saved. Yeah. That's the sort of risk cause analysis that would be more, more meta effective and more meta kind than just 
everybody has to stop their lives and stay inside alone for a couple of years so that, quote unquote, a few people, and I understand that 0.1 or 0.2% of the planet's population is like it's a lot of people. 700,000 people or something. Mm-hmm. Like, but compared to the 8 billion people staying inside at home isolated right. for years while we wait for a vaccine, like the Armageddon story is the sort of cause assessment we should be talking about, I think. I made a post. And that's not me being heartless. I no. care about people who die, but I also know lots of people die. So last week after our show, I found an article. Uh, this is not from some conspiracy magazine. It's Forbes magazine. Let me put it more seriously. Say it, say it more seriously. I love you more than anybody else on this planet, Dark. Oh. And Mutual. I would not keep everybody on the planet home to keep you alive. Yeah, it doesn't. that's not a good thing to do. I understand it's more important for the next generation to be able to leave home, hug their friends, and go to school mm-hmm. than for me to just be able to keep having you. Yeah, we're sentimental folk. It's hard. Um, I don't like I saying think, it. I think it goes back to that. <laughs> I think it goes back to what we were discussing earlier, which is what is your view? Are you a separate part from nature at war with nature, or are you in the natural order of things? Humanity and will speak? go on. That's a language. Being mm-hmm. in the natural order is a different language. It's a different mode. It's a different BS. I mean, belief system mm-hmm. than being apart of from nature separate from nature and defensive against nature. Mm-hmm. It's a very different way of being. So I, to, to, to make a point that you were saying, I posted an article on our, if you're listening to our radio show right now, and you would like to find out more information about post-orthodoxy, we do have a post-orthodoxy Facebook page. Um, so I posted an article on there after the show because I have stopped posting articles on my own timeline because of uh, this dumb level of angriness there's a lot of fear and anger that's yes. just become untenable for people me. are afraid which makes them angry which makes them lash out in unintelligent ways so i don't want to have those conversations but i do post things on the post-orthodoxy page and i posted an article called from forbes magazine uh 600 physicians say lockdowns are a mass casualty incident so I posted that not because I think it's correct or incorrect. I posted it because it's a different perspective from the medical industry saying that the deaths that we're seeing, there are people who are not getting cancer screenings that are going to die. There are people who are afraid to go to the hospital. And when, even they're when, they're having, stroke when they're having stroke symptoms and they die of a stroke, there's, there's, all kinds of suicide, depression. Amplified anxiety and depression. Suicide hotlines are up 600%. Oh my so these are real world things. This isn't some conspiracy thing. There's 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 unintended consequences of the lockdown that Just I think keep everyone alive. We should be talking about. That's not keeping everybody alive. It's actually no. causing a mass casualty incident, according to these doctors. Now you may not agree with the way they frame their arguments. I don't necessarily agree with the way they frame their arguments, but there's a lot of people saying we should look at whether this lockdown is is good or not. The guy, Mm -hmm. Michael Levitt, that I'm following, he's basically saying, we started the lockdown after the peak. Yeah, the U.S. US We have to clarify because we have 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 listeners in other countries. And and sorry, guys, but like the U.S. is one of the newest countries on the planet. So I would say I got one comment from somebody who was a friend of the show and has now unfriended the show. (laughs) It's no longer following the show. 
Yeah, just because you hate Nonis doesn't mean you ain't our friend. And this is what he said. He said, okay, unfollowing you now, since you're now proof of how the far left and right come together. Now, that to me actually sounds like a compliment. <laughs> like if like, yes, the far maybe right... Like, yes, we can come to some common that, ground. That seems like an impossibility for the far right and left coming together. And that's what we're actually trying to accomplish. If we could get the far right <laughs> and left to agree on some things, I think that would be the remarkable. The plan might move forward a little. But maybe he, he, he means come together like you've gone so far so to the far, end of the spectrum that you both fell over and like, like yeah, I don't know. I've just <laughs> Fell down in the same mud puddle. Anyway, that's... <laughs> Coming from a former friend of the show that obviously does not want the right and left to come together yeah. because he's invested in the division. Yeah. And so, if you say anything that sounds like what the bad guys are saying, then right. you're a bad guy. Then you're guy. a bad guy. So that kind of, um, this is, and that person is a professor. Mm. That person is a professor. A history professor. Yeah. Who, who said that he can't follow us because we've done too much to bring the right and left together mm. or something. Anyway. <laughs> uh, He's invested in that fight. Uh, and I think he, I think what he's saying is that extremists gonna extreme. I know, but I like to say it the way I say it, which is, it would be nice if we were not so extreme and yeah. found some middle ground somewhere between people who have extreme thoughts. Kev, I think we need more of that. Kevy Keen has a great comment on the topic of our AIDS HIV conversation. Okay, HIV AIDS. <laughs> yeah, uh, she says HIV can make you sick, but not without having cofactors. Weakening your immune system. Other words for this is comorbidities, that sort of thing. Which is the same thing we're saying with COVID-19. It, yeah, like it can make you sick if you're already weak. If you're already not yes. well. Yes. Turns out that over the course of history, now this lady is a medical professional. Yeah. FYI, guys. Yeah. Turns out over the course of history, one of those biggest immune complications was probably AZT admis- administered at high dosages. That's what that's what we found out. <sighs> yes, they were giving AZT to people in who are good health. In preventative of keeping them from developing autoimmunes and it actually weakened their immune system so much that they died. That's what happened. When you correlate the current COVID conversations, one of the biggest common denominators turns out to be Anthony Fauci. It's true. He aided Dr. Robert Gallo in his quote-unquote infamy when they announced that they pinned AIDS on an actual virus, HIV. Yeah. That was probably a misstep. Rockstar. Similarly, in COVID, do we actually think it's going to have a longer lifespan than it already did? We, oh, somebody just shared something. Okay. What? Hold on, hold on, (laughs) hold on. Okay, uh, Kevy continues. We know from previous virus analyses that a virus is already at around 50% herd immunity. 50? 50% okay. herd immunity okay. when the death rate peaks. Right, right. By the time the death rate peaks and starts going down, 50% of the population has already been like, good, we're, we're cool with it. Right. So basically be- we are getting sold a pharma cure yet again by Fauci when it's yeah. not actually warranted. And we have to, like, I have to keep bringing myself back. Okay, I have friends who have autoimmune diseases mm-hmm. and they're the ones waiting for the vaccine. Yes. They are waiting for the vaccine because they are the ones that might die and not be able to raise their kids. Exactly. But it was that, also those people that went ahead and did this AZT thing. The doctors, the politicians, and the, and the patients all clamored for the thing that actually ended up killing hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. We are getting so we sold have to be a, careful. a pharma cure yet again by Fauci when it's not warranted. She, sa- she continues, WHO and Fauci and Bill Gates 
all have stock in these cures. For us to pretend there's no conflict of interest is laughable. When 600 people died from dengue vaccine in the Philippines, let's not forget that Fauci was highly invested in that. When things like this happen, they get swept under the rug. So I, I want to... Follow the money. No, I want to talk about that a minute because mm. when you start talking about Bill Gates, you automatically start to polarize your audience. If you say ding, 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 Bill Gates, vaccines and if stuff. If you talk about you, Fauci, you've polarized your audience yeah. because these are polarizing figures. Because because humanity has allowed themselves to hang certain belief systems on the wall and say, if you say that, that means you're like this person. So I want to it, mitigate that. Okay. I want to mitigate that because I am agnostic. I don't know Fauci. I don't know Bill Gates. I've never had coffee or whiskey with them. I don't know them at all. All you can do is evaluate their actions. I can look at past history and what's going on and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Uh, I feel like it's a worthy discussion to talk about whether the medical industry at the state of the medical industry, and if we're talking about saving lives, we're talking about it through a a capitalist commercial venture called the medical industry. And we can't separate that. You know, was it Jonas Salk that invented penicillin? I don't know, actually. No, or was he the guy that, that did the measles? Uh, one of the guys that discovered the, the polio vaccine, okay. he basically said, I made this, and no, I don't want any money. Let's go take care oh, of the kids. Oh, it was the polio guy. I yeah. don't know his name, yeah. but it was the polio guy that was like, I made a vaccine, take it, go give it to everybody. What a naive moron he could have made so much he money. could have been so rich his grandchildren could be set so the guy that invented the azt drug made nothing what he made it uh he made the drug for leukemia turned out to be not so good some different people tried it for some different things and then the patent was bought by welcome uh, a company the company the pharmaceutical company made billions mm. That guy never received a thing. Well, it doesn't sound like he did it on purpose like the polio guy. Exactly. So I don't know if, I think if you come up, I mean, we should have that. That's a whole other discussion and a whole other show. Rather yeah. than like people, because I know as soon as you say Bill Gates and you're talking about, it starts to sound like conspiracy theory to some people. Well, many people have been trained to yeah. listen for trigger words trigger because words, we need right. to feel safe and it's got to be simple. So and I, I'm sorry, it's not simple. So if you have an opinion on Bill Gates, it puts you into one camp or another. If you have an opinion Ugh. on Fauci, it puts you in one camp or another. And I think we need to be having, I would like to, that's a, I don't want to defer because we only have 10 minutes left in the show. Mm -hmm. I don't want to defer stuff because I found myself listening to other shows saying, well, that's a conversation worth having and then never having that conversation. <laughs> but I think it is a conversation worth having about our medical industry industry the idea of medical industry so i looked at a, a little i have a little graph here i looked at a graph before we the did the gross domestic product of the u.s yeah we're looking at budgets here total federal spending so this is spending as in our tax dollars being spent by the federal government yeah it looks like a full quarter of our spending is medicare and health okay and a little larger than that, which takes us to over half of the pie, is Social Security, unemployment, and labor. Okay. And then that's a big chunk of our economy is Medicare and health. So, Well, it, wait, is that the economy or is that that's our federal, tax that's, dollars going that, to... Cause that's we, just federal spending. That's not yeah, but how where much... Is they, of, where are they getting that money? Is that our money that's, or like... That's taxpayer money. Okay. 
for and and a quarter over a quarter. So that was like twenty seven percent of total federal spending in two thousand fifteen. One trillion dollars on Medicare. And that's just regular old Medicare and health, whatever that means. Yeah. So that's federal spending on these issues. The I, I heard somewhere else, and I looked it up, and it was accurate, but now I'm trying to figure out the actual wording about how much of the U.S. economy is based in the medical industry. And I heard it was like half, but I'm trying to, I'm having a hard time finding that. Okay. So, like, it gets mixed in with consumer spending. So you can get medical care that is outside of insurance, and that is thrown into uh, consumer spending. But a lot of consumer, like most of our economy is consumer spending. We're no longer, um, like, we're consumers. I don't understand really enough about national economies to really understand what's going on right now. I apologize. So gross domestic product used to be our steel industry, our wheat, our big things. Now the big thing is consumer. Like if all the countries were businessmen in a room and businessman U.S. sold steel to businessman Brazil. How much money this country made which isn't the country it's the guy who owns the steel company and the right so on and so forth. okay but that deals with taxes and that deals with trade and so on so these the gdp i'm not an economist um and i'm uh, we should have an economist on the show and then we should talk about the medical industry because the medical industry is one of those things where with the hiv slash aids story the medical um economy there was a media hysteria and you could call it a hysteria now because I lived through it where basically I was told that I can't kiss anybody now until I'm ready to get married. Cause because you're going to be get, with them forever. Because I'm going to get AIDS otherwise because yeah. everybody has it. We're all going to die. So there was a his- hysterical um, tone to the narrative around AIDS because that sold Doritos and the new Ford Mustang and everything else that came on in between those news items. I can't have sex with people I want to have sex with, so I guess I have to go buy all these nice 80s things. I guess. So that, when you come up, when a company says, we have the solution to AIDS in this drug, then people react to that. And it makes them, and then it becomes almost an unstoppable force because once they connected HIV with AIDS, Tons of money went in, and then you jeopardize that money when you question the premise. Mm. That's why the premise cannot be questioned. And we're in the same crossroads right now. Somebody's going to come up with something that's going to say, this is going to take care of the COVID problem. And then a bunch of people are going to buy it. And then the the force of the anger and the fear. The desire to be free again. The desire to be free again will push another bad medicine through. And a bunch of people who already have money will invest the money they already have into stocks of that thing and make more money off of people needing it. And the income divide will continue. So I think we're running out of time. I'm really, I think we covered some grounds. We opened up some doors. The discussion should still continue. Mm. I don't know what our show theme is going to be next week. But I said this would be the theme this week, so I spent all week working on it. Right. Oh, I learned so much. My my mind has definitely shifted over the past week about around how viruses work, what viruses are, what bacteria is, how these things move around in our environments. You know, like I my, learned a lot about retroviruses. Like Not there's to tell you so about many it, so many kinds of things where I just sort of assume that the information I'm I still do in some cases sort of assume the information that I'm getting is 
is accurate from a particular source, you know? It was really interesting to do all the research on HIV and AIDS and then read the Wikipedia denier page. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost like I get lulled into the language Mm -hmm. that... Obviously, oh, they're deniers are and wrong, and this is set science, mm-hmm. even though they keep saying it's... Uh, anyway, it's... We have such a drive in this country right now, and of course, I can't speak to other countries because I don't live there, but right. um, we have such a drive in the U.S. right now uh, to know who's in charge. Yeah. Like, who can I trust? Where I just we... need to trust someone. I don't, I don't trust my dad anymore, or maybe you do trust your dad, so well, you're fine, or I don't trust my pastor anymore, oh, but the church is kind of crumbling a little bit, or yeah. uh, my government, no, but my government is definitely being deceitful and not making decisions for my, so I don't, mm, science, I'll trust science, and so like I feel like this is like the last bastion of people just like, I just need to trust someone, and so they've gone from like, can't trust the elders at home, losing faith in the religion, beginning to lose faith in the government, and now we're putting faith, our faith just keeps rolling over to a new thing. And guys, like, I'm sorry, at some point the human race has to get to a point where, like, we don't just blindly trust anybody. You, like, what is it? You have to be wise as a serpent and gentle as doves. And, like, my favorite new saying is take everything with a grain of salt and nothing for granted. Mm -hmm. Like, just don't, we can't assume, we can't just know that we know that we know and even with stuff that's purported to be quote-unquote science you still have to check your sources you still have to compare and contrast data you still have to teach yourself how to understand statistics you still have to follow the money just because somebody has a hairspray in their hair and a tie and a red white and blue background doesn't give it legitimacy Mm -mm. even though if you've been listening to that guy for a few years um it's it's unfortunate. People will give credence to the press because Trump said it was fake. So so as in people on Team Blue will just trust the journalists because, because Trump, Trump said, said it was fake news. Because that's really bad. That's so dangerous. It's really dangerous. And there are people who are dissing information he is saying that is medically sound because he said it. There's some accurate news coming through the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the large driving narrative I don't feel like is helpful. Kevy has one last comment for us before we tune out. That's good. Ignoring an idea based on the blacklisting by our indoctrinated narrative, highlighted now by media, medical, and government collusion, you're already completely controlled. Andrew Wakefield was one. He was blacklisted, scapegoated, and censored. He made the movie Vaxxed in Return and just released 1986, The Act. I watched his new release last night streaming. It's not free, but it's definitely the most dangerous movie in the world. It's worth your time and will blow your minds. There's nothing but medical history and fraud exposure. I already knew about 70% of the info in it, but I still learned a ton. Mm. So this is somebody who has been working in the medical field for a long time and said, I already knew about a bunch of governmental and financial corruption in the medical field, and this movie taught me even more. 1986, The Act by Andrew Wakefield. I'd be really curious to watch that. Hmm. Sam Thompson said, and science always changes, so you got to be okay with it. See, that's one of the things I was saying this afternoon earlier. Like, science is not a fact. Science is a question. It's a discipline, actually. Science is a study. It's a theorization. It's a process. It's a question. Thanks for uh, tuning into the show this week. We've really enjoyed doing it. We're going to be back next week. Thank you to all the comments and uh, our on and off air interactions with people are, are one of our favorite things. Yeah, and we'll see you next week. 
You can join the post-Orthodoxy conversation by catching one of our live streams on Facebook, Twitch, or YouTube. If you'd like to connect with us online, we can be found on Instagram at post-Orthodoxy, on Twitter and Facebook as ourselves, and on Twitch as The Seviers. Our work on the post-Orthodoxy conversations is supported by listeners like you through our Patreon, where patrons of the show have access to perks and exclusive content. That's patreon.com slash post-Orthodoxy. Post-Orthodoxy began as a live radio broadcast on KBMF 102.5 FM, America's Most Radio. Find other quality radio shows by the 70-plus volunteer DJs on the station archive at butteamericaradio.org slash shows. Or you can stream live 24-7 from anywhere on the planet at butteamericaradio.org slash stream. Our post-Orthodoxy theme music was composed by Frank Pascal, and a special thanks goes to our voice actors, Amelia, Colin, Zbo, Rosie, Gabo, Vicky, Mokai, and Tony. Thanks for playing. <laughs> What's outside your reality bubble? I think I dribbled a bit.